This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a hop shank. off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome former tour rep and golf club expert George Willett to the Sub Seventy Podcast. Uh, George, thanks for coming on today. Been looking forward to this conversation, uh, you know, ever since we got to kind of talk a little bit when we were down at the Woodlands uh, at the Champions Tour event. So, thanks for coming on. Oh, I appreciate it. Uh... Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, you know, I, I love the history of golf, you know, the equipment, the players, golf course architecture, you know, there's so much that you've seen over your 30 years kind of being out there. Uh, you know, it's tough to even like which direction we could go. Like, I feel like we could talk for three hours, you know, but uh, kind of like your history, like, you know, what were you doing in the golf business before you became a tour rep? Because obviously there has to be some, you know, they just don't grab a guy off the street and say, hey, you know, go be a tour rep for you know, our brand out on tour, which you work for TaylorMade, you know, how did that come about and what was sort of your ascension into golf to getting that position? Well, uh, I've always maintained that I am the luckiest person alive um, when it comes to how my career just kind of unfolded in front of me. Um, I went to the San Diego Golf Academy, which is now a defunct uh, operation out here in uh, Rancho Santa Fe, California. And uh, at that time, it would have been early 80s. Uh, Canadian dollar, I am Canadian. The Canadian dollar was about 55, 56 cents, 60 cents, somewhere in that neighborhood. So I was spending a lot of money in a short period of time. So uh, I had heard that there's this uh, club repair place down the road that was looking for help assembling some golf clubs and things like that. So I go and... Uh, talked to this gentleman who happens to be Canadian and uh, him and I hit it off and uh, I started in the trade through this gentleman uh, who held a, a small little shop in Vista, California. It was called Golf Master. Uh, slept on his floor and learned the trade of how to make golf clubs. Uh, that gentleman happened to be a gentleman by the name of Bob Vokey. So Slightly famous. He is now, but yeah. at that particular time, you know, on paper, I think the IRS figured he was making about $15,000 a year sort of thing. You know, we drove a brand new 1963 Corvette, and we had a Datsun B210 that we'd run around and do shop deliveries and stuff like that. He was just a former electrician that fell in love with golf and started this little golf shop. And what happened was is they came and got him to run the TaylorMade Tour Department because one of our customers was a gentleman by the name of Lee Trevino. And uh, Lee brought him into TaylorMade when he signed with TaylorMade. And uh, I had the background of making and fixing all kinds of golf clubs back then. So uh, they decided I was a good candidate to send to Europe. So I was actually working as an assistant pro in Toronto when this all came about uh, because I couldn't work in the States. They had tried to get me to go work for TaylorMade here in the U.S. and it wouldn't happen. But when they could send somebody to Europe, I was a perfect candidate because it's a Commonwealth country. I could work over in Great Britain quite easily. So, uh, what did TaylorMade look like in 1988? Like the size of it was that still in Illinois or was it in Cal? It was in California at that point, right? Yeah, it was was in California in that point. Uh, I think uh, I'm not exactly sure of the timing, but. Uh, Solomon had purchased it from Gary Adams, uh, who was basically on life support sort of thing. And uh, they had $8 million in accounts receivable and $7 million in debt. Solomon came in and basically gave Gary a five-year uh, non-compete and bought his company uh, and took it over. And basically, I think they, they made $29 million profit in the first year that they owned it. Uh, and... I think, you know, the number they paid for it was next to nothing, mainly because it was about to go under, and Gary Adams got his five-year deal non-compete, and uh, it took off from there. It was just a, you know, uh, it's one of those things where people hear you're struggling. Well, I'm not going to pay your bills if you're not going to be around in six months. So they were having a hard time collecting. So, And when they had Solomon come in and uh, buy it, uh, it just turned around that quick. 
Was that in '88? Was that still the era of the old, you know, burner driver with little dimples around the outside? Yeah, like, the right preferred. On that yeah. yeah, the tour preferred the burner. Yeah, uh, that was probably the big one. And we still had a lot of, you know, part of my job was to carry some of the old heads, like uh, the original tour spoon and things like that, with a yeah. screw in the bottom. Were actually made out of a, um, a slightly different casting, so they were extremely soft, and you could actually get some core effect from the fairway woods. That's why it worked so well, but there was a breakage issue with it because the material was so thin and uh, we would always have to carry a couple of those extras for guys like Curtis Strange and um, Lee Trevino because that was the one that they really enjoyed using was this uh, original one fairway wood, which was like 12 degrees and things like that. That's where the company really started to take off out on tour. Well, when you're asked to go to Europe, I'm sure you jumped on this. Like, what an experience. And, you know, what was your responsibility? You take this job in Europe. You understand club building. You're learning from from Mr. Vokey, who I think at that point was not a wedge designer. Like I said, he was just more of a club builder. Well, uh, yeah, Bob was running the tour department for TaylorMade and doing custom clubs for uh, the tour players and or uh, our green grass uh, pro staff that – we were trying to encourage to use the stuff all across the country. And they've always been big on the pyramid of influence. And they realized the club pros and tour players kind of drove that for them. So we were always into the numbers at that time of trying to get the most product into play. And Bob ran the tour department. And then eventually uh, when Gary Adams started another company, he came and got Bob and took him over to, I think it was uh, founders club and then McHenry metals that Bob yeah. went to work for, and then uh, he ended up with Titleist a few years later when they were looking for a wedge designer. And then your job in Europe. So you're over there. You're, it's the 80s. You're in Europe. Had to be a great time to be in Europe for many reasons. But, you know, was your job custom grinding clubs for guys? It, like, What was your role in that era of, of from a golf equipment standpoint to work with those players when you're over there? Yeah, I went over January of 88, and the first thing I had to do was build a the repair center because we were going to send one of the ones we had from the U S but it wouldn't, uh, operate under the codes over in Europe. Uh, we could get it in great Britain, but we couldn't get it operating in Europe because we would have had to change the entire trailer. So we just decided to build one over there. So my first thing was to go down to a dealership, buy a Mercedes, uh, looks like a UPS truck and then find somebody to kid out the back with a repair center. Um, and I built it, with uh, the technicians from the ground up, it was the first one of probably, uh, I would say, a dozen of these vehicles that I had built over the years with TaylorMade of how to create the layout and get uh, the proper layout so, so you could actually get as much stuff in one of these things as possible. Uh, I think my workspace was like six feet wide by 16 feet long, and now they've got one that's, I think, 48 feet long and story it's it's just it's really expanded over the years for sure they've become a showpiece but uh my job was to grow uh the brand over there we had a tour rep who was a uh, tour player but he was a fringe player so he wasn't in all the events but he would go to all the events and um just like in the states they had a harry taylor who is a former tour player or a current tour player that had the ability to talk to the tour players because he was one of them. We did the same thing over in Europe with a guy by the name of Stuart Smith and Stuart and I would show up at these events. And I think we had four staff players and about six or eight drivers in play when I started. Um, so it was really a new deal. And uh, Mizuno was the official repair trailer of the European tour. And technically they didn't want me on the range. You know, they tried chewing me off for the first six months and, as, as it went on, it became more and more popular, and I got closer and closer to the range, and eventually Mizuno says it's fine, and we were able to park on the driving range with them. But Europe was so much different than every, any other place I had ever been. Uh, we did a lot of our work after 5 o'clock. You know, um, in the summers, in, especially in Scotland, when the sun was up till 10 o'clock, you'd have, I'd have a case of beer and some wine underneath the trailer, and guys would be hitting golf balls, and We'd sit there and have a couple of pops and talk about it. And basically, uh, when I left in April of 89, we went to 82 drivers in play out of a field of 144. So we went from eight 
drivers to about 82 in the space of about 18 months. So uh, it was an extremely quick growth period. So we were building hundreds of clubs a week, trying to keep up with the demand. Um, my first customer, we were in the south of France. I've got uh, Ballesteros had showed up from Augusta to play in a Monday Pro-Am. He'd come in in a red eye. And he was supposed to play on Monday with the sponsors, and his clubs didn't make it. So my first customer was making an f- entire set of golf clubs for Seve so he could tee off at noon. No pressure there. No. So, you know, I looked at my boss, and I says, I guess it's downhill from here. You know, my idol and the number one player in my mind in the world at that particular time was your first customer. So it was kind of fun to to start that way. How was he to work with equipment-wise? I mean, would you, I'm guessing there's a lot of feel from him. Did you have to, if you're building a set of irons, is, are you custom grinding soles? Like, in, or is he saying, hey, I'll take a little of this off, a little of that off, let me go hit this five iron. Would he go club by club to kind of get that right feel that he wanted? Like, what was his Well, process? he would do, like you said, he'd do everything by eye. Like, you know, obviously we didn't have time to do that in this case. I had to get him a set of golf clubs in a couple hours to go play. But as we went through and did things for him over the years, he would get a Sharpie and basically create shadows on the golf club of where he wanted it shaved or turned or did uh, the different things with uh, rat tail files to try and get a curve the way he wanted it or uh, a top line that was flat and things like that. If you were really getting into it with him, he would, but he hated machines. He didn't like a lion loft machine. He did it all by eye. You know, you got to remember back then, all of the uh, iron heads were basically hand drilled, you know, in a drill press. And you put them in a little crooked, it might sit a little off. And he'd yeah, do it yeah. by eye. You know, your numbers would say one thing, but he says, no, it's too flat. Just bring it more upright. And he did it all by eye. And, uh, he would he do it by of, ball flight too, or would he just do it by – he could tell from eye what the ball would then do. Was well, I think I think he had an idea when he came in what he needed to do, and then he'd say, you know, a little bit more here, a little bit more more there, and uh, for the lion loft to bend him where he wanted to. He didn't really ever ask me what the number was. He would tell me I need a little bit more up or a little bit stronger, things like that. When he walked into the trailer, he knew exactly what he wanted from hitting the golf clubs previously or – he wouldn't, you know, you'd get him to a general area and then he'd uh, take it one by one all the way through. He was one of the first guys that taught me that each golf club has its purpose. Um, you know, you've got a set of irons and at that time everybody was buying like a set of woods. And you bought the one, three, five woods and you bought the three through pitching wedge and the irons. And he basically told me, you know, I, gentlemen like him and I guess Tom Lehman reinforced that and so did Bernard Langer and some of the others that would carry you'd look at their irons and you think well this is crazy you got like Langer had a Hogan 3 and 4 iron and then some Adams irons and then some tailor-made wedges and different things like that but they and Tom Lehman had four different sets of tailor-mades and a set of eight irons um, but he wanted each particular club to go a certain distance at a certain trajectory. And he would find different ways to accomplish that. It could, it, it didn't have to be all part of one set. You I know, say that all the time. It doesn't all have to match. <laughs> you know, you might need a little love here and a little help there. And it's okay to go out thinking outside the box to make that work for your game. Yeah, it, it, that's exactly it. And, you know, uh, those are the, the, that's what I find the great players find what works for them. And, you know, forget the rules. There are no rules. It has to do what it has to do. What was Seve like if you went out to dinner with him? Like, just as you got to know him as a friend, you know, away, you know, away from the golf course, uh, you know, what was he like as just a human being? He's such an icon, right? Everything, I mean, it's hard for me not to think of him as this hero, you know, fist pumping on St. Andrew's, you know, green in 84, right? That's, but what was he just like as well, a person, I, having dinner at the cafe with him? I was very fortunate uh, to get taken out by these gentlemen uh, the entire time I was in Europe. Like we, if we were, we were one time we were down in the south of Spain. I think it was Catalonia. And said he says, "Come, come, come to dinner tonight," and he gave me directions. And it was at somebody's house, a big mansion on the ocean, sort of thing. And there was fifteen of us, and they were all the Spanish-speaking players. I don't speak a lick of Spanish. 
but Vicente Fernandez, who's from, uh, I think, Argentina, sat next to me and would translate back and forth. But very generous, very, uh, they were wonderful people, all of them. Seve was, uh, he had a, a wonderful warmth to him and smile. And he, uh, just an incredible individual with his with his time. But unfortunately, he was torn in so many different directions. I don't think I ever saw him in a restaurant in the year, year and a half I was there. It was all private dinners and things like that because he just couldn't go anywhere. It was just too crazy. He just couldn't enjoy himself. It just turned into a circus. Yeah, and so he would find, uh, like, uh, I, I gather restaurants with uh, private rooms or local people that he had met that uh, invited him over and wanted to entertain him. So it was, you know, I, it was the only time I had dinner with Seve uh, was in that group kind of format. And he, he just, he brought me and he brought the guys in the physio trailer, which were brand new too, that worked on his, uh, you know, uh, stretching and things like that that would help him out. But it was, it was a, a crazy time really. Uh, well, it had to be a lot of fun too, right? I, I, and I, and I, the people who listen to this podcast probably ad nauseum with, but I loved that era of European. And we talked about the European tour, and the golfers, and the personalities, and the different golf swings. And as an American golf fan, like you didn't see them play that much, right? So when they did come over for a major or the Ryder Cup did happen, these guys were like twelve rock stars coming. That you know, in that era, those guys were so good. If we're talking Torrance, you know, Woosnam, Faraday, Feld, I'm thinking Monty, Ali, Langer, right? I mean, that, that tour was deep and you just didn't get, you know, we didn't have the European or DP world tour on the golf channel. You just didn't get to see them play that much. No, so the there top was 10 guys mystique. over there. Yeah. The top 10 guys over there were as good as anybody in the world. There's no question about it, but they were all, yes. it was a different sort. Like, I went to, when I went to Europe, you, there was two travel groups. You either stayed with Foxy, who I did, or this other group, and they handled all of your travel. They would have, if they, you missed a cut, like on Friday night, they'd have tickets for you to fly back to London. Everybody used London as a home base. I would say the majority did anyway, and British Airways would just go back and forth. But you would stay in these huge hotels with the lobby bars, and that's how I, I did some of my best work is, I'd go down to the lobby bar and there'd be eight or 10 or 12 guys sitting there having a beer six, eight o'clock at night. Cause you didn't go out for dinner till if you were in Spain, you didn't go to dinner till 10, 10 30. So in a lot of cases, we go to the lobby bar, have a couple of drinks. And then uh, one of the English guys would get up and says, I'm going for pizza. Who's coming with me sort of thing. So you'd get five or six guys to go. You were together with these guys 24 hours a day when you were on site. So there was a, a, definite camaraderie amongst the players. And then when I came to the States in 89, there was a hundred hotels that you could stay at. So they spread out and you never saw anybody. They didn't even have breakfast at the same tables in the, in, in, in player dining. Whereas in Europe, it was, everybody was always together. And, you know, Colin Montgomery was a rookie in 88 sort of thing. He was just an up and coming guy. Um, Faldo, I took the trailer to his house on a couple of occasions and parking in his driveway and work on his stuff in the off weeks. Um, it was just a close knit group of guys. Faldo is one of the funniest dudes I had ever met in my entire life. And now that he's doing, you know, some more things outside of the TV where he was always serious or he, you know, he would never show weakness amongst other players type of thing. He would, but man, he had some limericks and dirty jokes and stuff like that. That was just so funny that it was contrary to the image that he had on the golf course and on TV. And so for 25 years, I'm telling the secret sort of thing that Falto was a good guy, but nobody, nobody understood it or, you know, agreed with me because of the persona he put on when he was on TV, he never wanted to show weakness. So, but if you're at his house on Tuesday, he's actually a good dude. No, he's a great dude. Yeah. Great dude. Yeah. So one of my favorites, Sam, Sam Torrance, right? I mean, legend, a 21, you know, European tour wins the Ryder cup. Uh, he's a Ryder cup hero. I know I shouldn't root for him, but it is what it is. He's great. Um, he had to be so much fun to have a couple cocktails with at a bar. I know I was talking to some of the European tour players like Sammy, even if he wasn't, you know, Friday night, even if he's in contention on Saturday, not that he's going to go out late or anything, but he's still going to have a couple beers with the guys and hang out a little bit. Like that's just what he did. And, um, 
he had to be a great guy to get to know as well, right? Just total legend. No question. Uh, Sammy wasn't afraid to go to the bar and have a couple of pops with the guys, but it was all about being around the guys. Uh, later in the week, I had always been gone. So I was there Monday through Thursday to work the events, and I would probably take off Friday morning to get to the next next event. So I didn't see a lot of the stuff afterwards. But, you know, Volvo Masters down in the south of Spain, you know, I, I stayed for the entire week and tore it up on a couple of occasions because it was a year end. And I'm walking home one night and the sun's coming up and Sam's out in his balcony having a cup of coffee with his wife and he starts laughing at me from about 50 yards away. And he's just laughing at me the whole time. And uh, he had been with us the night before at the bar called La Duquesa or in La Duquesa. It was a rider bar. And, uh, they had all the Ryder Cup stuff on the side of the walls. And it was, he was a big golf fan at this uh, resort. And, uh, he had been with us, and I was just finally coming home when the sun was coming up, and he giggled the entire time and invited me up and had a cup of coffee with him before he went to go play. But uh, Sam was one of those characters that he always had a story to tell. But one thing he didn't want to do is uh, if he was playing pool, you'd watch. Don't play against him. One of the greatest He's pool players class. in the Right. Oh, yeah. one of the best in the world, and nobody knew about it. But he was unbelievable. I can remember hearing stories about him playing against the world champion, the Canadian uh, Thornbury, I believe his name was, or something like that. And he'd give him all he could handle. So you know, it's just. And Sam would what take... do you call that elite, elite hand-eye coordination, two levels, right? Wasted childhood, you know. It, it takes a lot of practice time, you know to be good at golf and good at pool. So obviously uh, he had the steady nerves to be able to do it. And uh, you, you take a look at Sam's schedule. He was an in- interesting character. If it was a Ryder Cup year, I think he played every week. And if it wasn't a Ryder Cup year, he would play the minimum events and do a lot of his corporate stuff in those off years. But it, the Ryder yeah. Cup was so important to him that he had to go get points and he would play every event year in a Ryder Cup year to try and position himself to be on the team. So, Were you also basically required to be at every event? So essentially was tailor-made at every single event during that season? Yes. Yes, it was. Oh, some, that's a lot on the road. Wow. Well, it, it, Europe's small. You know, in a lot of cases I'd be in, uh, like, Portugal, and then I had to be in Germany. Well, people say, well, that's a long way to go. It looks like it's a long way. It's like 800 miles. It's really not that big a deal. I mean, right. uh, I got stuck on a ferry in Ireland once and had to get to the south of France. And I was running a little bit late. Usually I like to be there on the Saturday, set up Sunday, and then the players would arrive at different times on Monday. But uh, I didn't get on the ferry out of Ireland until like Sunday morning. And I got across the ferry from uh, Dublin over to somewhere in north of Scotland, drove to the south of uh, England, got on another ferry, got across, and then drove to the south of France all in a day. And people say, well, that's impossible. I said, it's really not that far. It took me like 14 hours. But, uh, you know, it, you're right. Like when I was in Scotland this fall, right, it's like you forget how small it is. Like you can get from the south of it to the north, which I think has got to be, you know, I don't know, 12 hours or something. We're in here in the States or the size of Canada. I'm like, no, it's like a, you know, three hour drive. I'm like, that's yeah. it. Mm-hmm. What? Well, like, it, no, it's got to be huge and not that big, to be honest. Here's a stat for you. Do you know the farthest part, the farthest point inland in any spot in Great Britain is 72 miles to the ocean? You're within 72 that's- miles. At the farthest point anywhere in Great Britain. That's crazy. You, you, I would have bet it's wait. It's got to be three hundred miles or something, right? <laughs> it's seventy-two miles to to water. Yeah, it's not that big. Um, was going to ask you to a couple of the other players who I just love. Woos them. What any good woozy stories from equipment or just once again getting to know him as a human? Woozy was uh, my kind of guy. Him and I uh, got along fantastic with my mentality growing up playing hockey and things like that he loved the caddies loved to go hang out and have a few beers with the caddies i can remember one night being in like this rough bar with caddies and there was a couple of players and woozy woozy uh, 
having had a few drinks in him and decided he wanted to fight. And you wanted to make sure you were on his side. Because, he's tough, right? Oh, no. He, yeah. uh, I, I watched him mop the floor with a few guys. He was just, and this is when he was young, uh, and he was he was not afraid. And he, I guess the Europeans or like Canadians sort of thing, they, they fought in a lot of cases because it was fun. It was a, a form of <laughs> entertainment. I mean, when I grew up in, I grew up in a small town in northern Ontario. And that's what I mean by lucky. If you find out where I was from, and now spent 30 years in the golf business, well, you go, how, how, how did that happen, sort of thing. But, you know, if you went out on a Friday or Saturday night, didn't get in a fight, you didn't, you weren't in, you know, you, you're out with the ladies, sort of thing, because you'd fight your best friend, sort of thing, if you had enough whiskey in you. It just, it was crazy. But it was, you'd get up and have a beer. Whereas here in the States, somebody would ask you, you know, you want to go? Well, if you were in Europe and Canada, it's too late. You're swinging before you ask, sort of thing, or you're, you've lost the fight. It was just the way we grew up. Well, and he also had to be super strong, right? I mean, he was just built like a bowling ball, right? Just huge forearms, thick, naturally strong. I wouldn't want to fight a guy like that. Low center of gravity, man. If huge, you got huge lat, wide across the back, and he would turn his back to the to the target and swing through sort of thing so it wasn't a real long golf swing but it was all power yeah just yeah i mean for not a lot of height he created a lot of power from you can just tell he was that strong I, like i said i wouldn't want to get into a bar fight with that guy if he got a hand on you no there was a couple guys that uh, you, you didn't want to mess with and i think he would be one of them and fulton allen was another guy that as kind and as sweet as he was he was just sinew and gristle you know uh, he, he, he would he could kind of scare you where he was so so very very strong it was kind of spooky another guy i think that uh, doesn't get credit for as good of a player as he was because he makes it out that he was terrible but obviously he wasn't david Faraday, right like he could really play in his day uh did you get to spend some time with 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 David and on the European tour because that was kind of the years he was in his prime as well as a player. He, well, he was one of him and Ronan Rafferty were from the Irish area and they were fantastic to be around. Very, very good players. Um, I don't know why David ever thought he wasn't any good, like part of his humor or whatever. But he was one of the best ball strikers there was. I think he was absolutely fantastic. I'm not sure he enjoyed it too much because. Uh, with the pressures and demons that people get from one thing or another, I couldn't tell you, but uh, he had some problems with uh, the alcohol and things like that. And I think uh, he decided to get away from it as much as possible, but he's a very, very intelligent man. I think he, he's up there with the geniuses of the world sort of thing. Uh, very, very, very intelligent, very quick witted. And uh, he, from what I understand, he, I, what I had heard, he's a classically trained opera singer as well. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. So he's a, he's a man of the arts. It doesn't surprise me. You can tell he, you know, there's, uh, you can see his intellect quite easily just listening to him speak, right? He seems to know a lot about a lot of subjects, and you can tell uh, there's a lot going on up there. Yeah. Well, one thing I noticed, yeah, everybody used to enjoy uh, a guy like Gary McCourt and how he would speak. And he, But Gary was far more prepared than anybody I'd ever seen. He would have three laptops set up, one being with a list of one-liners that he might be able to work into the conversation at some point over that production. Had him sitting there waiting. He was prepared. He even pumped in sounds like the birds that were tweeting and things like that to give the ambiance that he was in, in the booths. You know, I remember, I think he got in trouble one year. He's typing in this uh, bird, and the bird didn't live anywhere in the region, and somebody called him out on it. <laughs> but, uh, so it, it's, it's also, uh, also another, yeah, he knew what he was doing, but also a better player than he gives himself credit for as well. Those guys have that in common, right? I mean, Gary was on the PJ Tour for 20 years or whatever. You can't fake that. No. For 15 he, years, how long he was out there. He could play yeah. golf. Yes, there was no question he could play golf, and uh, he didn't have to win on the PGA. He had a license plate on his little Mercedes that said "No Wins." He, you know. But yeah, he you know they won the Champions Tour and won a couple. He, he, he sells himself short. He was 
a really good player for a long period of time, right? But, but he, uh, he made a great horse and pony show out of being I was terrible. Yeah, exactly. And he he was a very intelligent guy and knew how to market himself and do things like that. Whereas Faraday was also is very intelligent, but a lot of his stuff is off off the cuff. You know, he, he didn't really because he's like walking the golf course. He couldn't prepare the way McCord did with the different. Uh, laptops he'd have in front of him but uh, it was enjoyable to see or be around those those kind of characters i spent some late nights with david in a piano bar and when he'd start ripping it up and start singing and it was uh some fun times what was a young monty like was was it was it still the rabbit ears and the intensity or was he a little different when he was first out there he has mellowed so much compared to his rookie year he lost five tournaments in his rookie year, 1988, where he threw him out going down the stretch. Um, he would make a mistake, make a bogey, make a double. And, you know, uh, as it was put to me in later years by uh, a different player, he says he threw his rattle out of the crib on several occasions where he just kind of melt down and act like a baby and do whatever. And uh, he, he has matured from that. But he would turn this crimson red I'm laughing. I just I can picture it, right? The whole face just. And you wouldn't. I, I didn't have much contact with him, and didn't because we just, you know, back then he was with Wilson, and he would, you know, it was Mizuno on tour and TaylorMade on tour. So if he needed some help, we'd do some stuff with him. But I really, you know, he just. I don't know if it was insecurities or what it was, but uh, just being a young guy, where I'd watch him blow up and things like that, I would give him a wide berth. I just wanted to hang around the guys that were a lot of fun to be around. But now in later years on the champions tour, when I was working with him, you would, you wouldn't think it's the same guy. It, he well, is, the guys, they love him out there now. Oh, they he's absolutely him. unbelievable. How nice he is. But you know, uh, the, who was I was talking to a champions tour player that does like to still irritate him about a noise or something. God, who was I talking to? Gosh, who was it? Where it's like, they almost try to get him riled up a little bit still. About did you see that Marshall or just see something over there? Because you can still get him a little rattled, but it's not like it used to be. So they said that he's still like somewhat fun to irritate a little bit. Well, you know. he understands how easily he was rattled before. And there'll be, <laughs> you know, even at some of the places that, you know, if the Champions Tour got to play in New York, they would call him out. They they won't forget. So if he showed up at an event in New York, I'm sure you'll hear about it. Sort of thing. But, you know, he is... Uh, just a wonderful guy. And he loves to travel, loves to get in his car. He doesn't, I don't know if he doesn't like to fly. Obviously he's flown a lot, but he's taken this opportunity in the champions tour to see the country. He drives from yeah, event to event. He drives everywhere. Yes. Yeah. And he's and, always like showing pictures of him, in these national parks and like, and I, like I said, I think the American fan base now loves Monty. I think yeah. they like to irritate him just a little bit, but now it's out of respect. Like he's been so great for so long, and he does have such a great personality. I remember in his heyday, I was like, ah, I don't like that guy with the Ryder Cups and everything. Now it's like, as he got later in his career, I like Monty. Like, yeah, I, I don't I, think... I dig Monty. Like, he's pretty, He's you know, now he's just lasted long enough and he's mellowed out a little bit that people, I think, in the States at least root for him now. They like him. Well, there's been a couple of different errors, and um, obviously Greg Norman with the persimmon wood is probably the greatest driver of the golf ball we had ever seen with a persimmon and then the field kind of got equalized with metalwoods. But I would put Colin Montgomery probably in the top three all time drivers with a metalwood in his heyday. He could he could drive the eyes off and he just was so straight, always played that little buttercut fade, uh, and knew what he could do with it. He didn't try and draw the ball or do different things. He would just play his game and I swear, he's one of the greatest drivers of the golf ball I had ever seen. And he was playing Callaway. So, for me, that was like the devil. And he was long enough? I had oh, to be, right? You don't win that many orders of merit. Or he could pound it if he needed to back in his day. Exactly. But he never – he didn't have to make so many birdies because he wasn't making bogeys. Yeah, so he just picked his spots, essentially. Yeah, it was like Annika. Annika didn't – you know, she was going to make four or five birdies around and – Maybe one bogey, you know, catch me in four days at, when I'm 400 par. Go ahead, try. And that's what Colin did. He just wore them out. Yeah, he uh, 
you don't have that level of greatness for what he accomplished on that run without having every facet of your game, right? Then he must have figured out the mental side. He had the physical side. He had the touch. He had to be long enough. You can't win. What did he win? Eight or nine orders of merit? Like, it's in a row? I think it was seven in a row and eight overall. That's right? In a career? That's Yeah. And you know what the competition was. You were over there with the competition. Even the 90s was over there. Yeah. Yeah. And well, you saw in the U.S. what I saw in his rookie year or two when uh, he was starting out in his temper tantrum and the rabbit ears and all the rest. When he got ratcheted up and he came over and played in the majors, obviously he was fine-tuned. Everything was going on around him. He couldn't block it out. And he would have a few meltdowns out on the golf course, and that's why the U.S., crowd kind of went at him a little bit but he was always you know since then he's been absolutely fantastic yeah gotta love Monty um to ask you more on the equipment side so you I mean you started off with an era there is no track man there's no GC quads you had to kind of go and and you know I, I'm old enough where I remember still fitting golf clubs and if it was outside on a range you could still tell by the ball flight what's going on and you know do we kind of have it dialed in right you could still see it mm-hmm. would you say it was harder back then to fit the equipment with the variances and the balls not being as consistent or as you went on with your career uh, without having this many different maybe tools or the guys having the expertise of how to you know get the exact grind they want was it more difficult as the clubs became more that's what I'm trying to use uh, neutral or less unique uh, you know than, than the stuff from the 80s where you really had some unique grinds on irons and some wedges and stuff you could do where seems like a lot of that those eras that era player could really just kind of find it out of the ground like we were talking about earlier so did I guess my long-winded question was did it get easier or harder as the equipment essentially got more consistent and the ball got better well uh, for instance Lee Trevino I first one of the first times I worked with him on a site was at uh, 1988 at the British Open. He shows up, and I'm standing in the back of the trailer, and he's on the ground, and there's he's got his 50 people following him around, and he starts holding court and chatting, and I'm the guy that does all his club repair. And I look down, and all of the ferals were melted off his clubs. He had reset the shafts the night before in the hotel room. So what I mean to say by that is a lot of the guys did the work on their own because that's what they had to, and they found it, and they could work it, with what they've got. Um, I was doing lion loss for Craig Stadler once, and I said, you're four irons, two degrees more upright than everything else. He said, I said, do you want me to put it in line? He says, no. He says, if I need to hook something, I hit that four iron. So they knew how their golf clubs operated and weren't worried with the minutia. And then we started getting into the age where we had some technology. I had a digital swing weight scale that would, Basically, it was a gram weight scale where you could measure the weights of grips and ferrules. And I would have guys come in and separate the grips. They all had to be 50 grams or 50.1 grams or, yeah. you know, and do that. And he would even, uh, John Matthew would separate the ferrules. So all of the ferrules weighed exactly the same amount. And then swing weights would be D3.4. Not D3.5. We needed them to D3.4. I threw that machine away. I said, that's got to go because we're not going to get into that kind of minutia. And then you start with the frequency and everything else. But now you see the players come in, you'll give them, you know, you might ship them 50 drivers to their house with different combinations of shafts and things like that. And they'll find what they've got and then they'll bring it in. But they'll test everything on the track, man. And then they take it out to the golf course. Or you give them something is that on the golf good course. Or bad, or, or is it get one dimensional then if you're just relying on the track man only versus playing golf? I, I think it it hurts because it you lose the artistry of it. Um, golf clubs have gotten disposable. You know, uh, you know, like Justin Thomas giving away his wedge this week. Are you kidding me? Back in the day you'd hold on to a wedge that worked for you for months if not years, you just give it to some kid because he had a scratch on the sole. He had a rock in a bunker. And I'm going, wow. You know, and uh, it's golf clubs have become, because the trailers are out there and we've got manufacturers that can ship stuff overnight and get it to you the next day. And we, we've turned these guys, golf clubs, into disposable objects sort of thing. Whereas, you know, if you remember back in the day, uh, 
Byron Nelson was talking to his wife about getting a new driver. And she says, well, I haven't had a new dress in two years, and this is your third driver this year. She says, maybe you need to go practice more. Yeah, it's changed. I mean, we see it with wedges a lot with our tour guys of like, you know, I think they, they want new grooves quite often. You know, we're, we're changing out wedges four or five times a year at this point. Yeah, well. For our little staff that we have. Yeah, it was like Mark O'Meara was one of my, uh, our best staff player for years at TaylorMade. He was our, our flagship, our horse. And we had him on a, I had him on a maintenance schedule. You know, uh, every five weeks that he had, regardless of whether he played or not, we would change the grips, do the lies and lofts and check everything out. And now basically, you know, since that time, you know, in 98, that worked well. And then he ended up leaving us in about 2000. And from what I understand, he got new golf clubs every five weeks, the entire set of irons and woods, the whole bit rather than working with these guys for the year. You know, we spend the off season getting ready for the new year. And those are the clubs you play for at least that year. And well, then that you, seems strange with an iron because they're all a little bit different, right? Like, no, I, don't, I don't. I mean, I own a golf club company, and I'll play irons for years if once I get them exactly where I want them. Yeah, uh, yeah. wedges I might change a little bit more, maybe once a year for me. But iron zone, once it's doing what I want it to do, it I don't. I don't like messing with it too much. VJ started it. He basically put in new wedges at every major championship. That was you know the week before, so you would have fresh grooves for the majors. And then, uh, you know, with O'Mara being every five weeks of maintenance and things like that, uh, we had schedules for these guys of basically what the, what they needed. And then other guys, you know, I mean, Tom Weisskopf, what did he play, 30 years on tour? Yeah, thereabouts. He used, he, he used two sets of irons in those 30 years. I have a good story. I was watching, I was in high school in early uh, 91. I was watching Weisskopf at a Champions Tour event in Aurora, Illinois, it has got this old brown leather bag with these Wilson, I think maybe it was some Wilson blades, if I remember right. He's about a foot taller than everybody else. I just sat there mesmerized at the sound of the impact. He was in his early 50s, so he still had it. It just sounded different, looked different, went twice as high. Mm-hmm. And the swing was just this thing of power and grace in one motion. I, mean, I remember just sitting there watching him hit balls for like 40 minutes, like, Whatever that guy's got, my goodness, if I could ever make a golf ball sound and do what he did. That, I mean, the talent was insane. And yeah. he's, you know, hitting balls next to other tour players, and that's how much better it was. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, that's almost a prototype for tour players now for size. Whereas yeah. back then, he was an anomaly because it was hard to get golf clubs that would fit. You know, nobody used longer golf clubs. You know, like Phil Blackmar used to do a lot of club repairing. You know, you don't realize how big that man is until you get up next to him and you realize like he's six, six six or something, right? Um, I think it's closer to six eight. That's a big boy. Yeah, and uh, he was a long drive guy too, and he used to just put extensions in his clubs and do different things like that. But back in when I started, a lot of these guys did their own work, or they didn't do any work at all. They just take them off the rack, and away they would go, whatever they sent them, and learn how to play. But now everything's down to the minutia that the clubs have to be perfect, and then they're, you know, the, if it doesn't work out, it's still the, the golf club's fault. There's no artistry, as far as I can see yet, left. It's just hit it as hard as you can, gouge it out, hit a wedge, make some putts. So there's there's no Lee Trevino's left. There's no you, the, the tour is going to miss guys like Zach Johnson and Mike Weir, the little banjo hitters. You know that that's going away. That's yeah. just going to go away. They no, can't compete anymore. It's basically it's, gone. Yeah. So yeah, you, you, it, over the long haul, the the math proves that if you're six foot three and can hit it that far, you know, no one's going to win the Masters again by laying up on every par five. I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, so it's a different it's a different game. Uh, who who had some of the best natural feel? In other words, like he, you could give him a club. Of the guys you worked with, he could go uh, swing weight slightly off or ask for changes, and he was right. Mr. He was Aoki. right of like how really? Asayo Aoki, without question, probably had the best set of hands I'd ever seen with that sort of. He could tell a half swing weight. He could tell a half a swing weight. Yeah, I tested him on a couple he... of occasions, and he'd laugh at me. Nice man, wonderful man, but I'll tell you what, he had a set of hands on him. 
Well, he played the golf like he had a set of hands on him, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, what he could do with wedges and irons and, I mean, there was a lot of hand action in that golf swing. Yeah, but, uh, you know, he's one of those characters that, you know, a lot of people didn't think he'd speak English, you know, because he was always so quiet or whatever, always had an interpreter. And I think that was a bit of a protection thing. But if you got him and went to dinner with him, had a glass of wine or two, and he, he could speak English as good as I could, you know, but very, very quietly. And, and he could tell the same thing with just swing weight or uh, extra shaft wrap of flex, tape in whatever. the spot, shaft flex. Yeah, no, he could figure it. He knew exactly what he, he wanted and how to achieve it. So, yeah. And Hale Irwin was pretty good at it too, right, of getting that equipment just by field dialed in as well? Pretty much really good at getting his stuff set up for him the way he wanted it? Hale, uh, Hale is one of the best that I've ever seen at a lot of different things, but his competitive fire was what, what made him great. I mean, he didn't hit it far compared to a lot of guys, but he just, he was a mechanic. He knew how to get around the golf course. And I can remember one day we're working out in the, in the kingdom and uh, he comes in and I set up a track man. He says, what do you need that for? I says, well, it's for us to, you know, check yardages and distances and stuff like that. So he started warmed up and got in front of it and, he says, okay, let's do this as an experiment. And it's a seven iron. Looks at the trajectory and he says, that's 142. Right on the number. He knew <laughs> by looking at it in the air how far it was going to go and do different things. And then we would take him inside and put him on the putting uh, machine. We had a mat system that would track, track your stroke and your path and uh, whether it was up or down, inside, out, face angle, whole bit. It was quite a miraculous system and state of the art at the time. And he and Retief Goosen were um, probably had the most spin on their natural putting stroke I'd ever seen. So they hit it in such a way where the ball would come off checking. Well, that's weird. Cause they putted it really well. Normally and I, I said, they, rolling, right? Yeah. And I, I told Hale, I said, what do you do differently? Say you're in Hawaii, you play great in Bermuda grass. What do you do? When you've got an uphill putt and it's into the grain. So he, yeah, he brushes yeah. it and all of a sudden his backspin went from negative 70 to plus 140. He knew how to putt in those conditions. But what it makes you understand is when they get on extremely fast U.S. Open golf courses and they've got that downhill slider, they've got that little putt that checks and then trickles out. They could hit it. They actually spun their putts enough where they could control it, and then it would be like a delayed release and be able to be really good on the Shinnecocks or Medinas where they yeah. were downhill slippery putts. They were so much better than everybody else because they could actually check it, and it would just kind of really do the same it. thing. Yes. Could he switch the putting stroke around too if he had to go uphill under Bermuda? No problem. Not as well. Not as well, but it was always, it, he always put it great in U.S. Opens. When they were extremely oh. fast, I was say, both of those guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense then, right? Then all of a sudden, you probably saw that and go, "Oh, okay." You know, there's an inherited advantage, right? Yeah. When those, you know, especially from that era when those guys were playing it, when the golf courses were literally on the edge, you know, it just yeah. seemed to be getting out of a little bit at this point. Um, I was going to ask you too about. I think it's interesting, like for the era that you went from to where you ended. That Taylor made, you know, in, in Taylor made. You think of Taylor made with drivers, graphite shafts. How 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 did, how did that transition go? Where the players, you know, could really start trusting pulling steel into graphite. And what was some of the seminal moments in it? Was it you know the HM40, then the Pro Force, and then EI7? Like, where did that really get to the point where the shafts got good enough for those players to, to pull steel out? And how long did that? I mean, you guys probably saw as a manufacturer, this is a little bit of a better mousetrap, but how did that transition go? And what were sort of the big moments in that of getting that technology to really work for the best players in the world? Well, I think the first one would have been uh, the TaylorMade Tour Gold, which was uh, the Aldola HM40 shaft. We had an yeah. exclusivity to it and painted it gold, and uh, so it would stand out market-wise sort of thing. But it was it was pretty decent. Uh and that's where the numbers with the graphite, because we can go a little bit longer with the same headway, get a little bit more speed, and still have the control. 
because it was overall weight. But it really, the next one was the HM55, which was what we called the Flex Twist. Uh, oh, I remember 90, that one. Yeah, it was like, 93. That yeah. was the black and gray one. Gray that's one, when, yep. That's when they started to really get an idea of how to do it. You know, previous to that, we had graphite shafts that had three and a half, four degrees torque. And then they were able to reduce the torque on the HM55 to, I think it was 1.82. Oh, that's a tight shaft. Yeah. And that was the first one that, you know, where you used to get a lot of the flex from the tip of the shaft, and that's where the launch came from, and that's where the inaccuracy come. And then they were able, when they were able to stiffen up the tip, they were able to go to mid-flex or butt-flex to try and control the flight trajectories, but they had to make it stiff enough and get it to operate before they could get that far. But I think those are the two that really took off. And then we had, uh, I think, Fujikura came to TaylorMade, and uh, they started making the shape shaft, the bubble shaft for us back in, yeah. in, in yeah. the day. And that's when we started messing with weights. You know, a lot of people said, you know, why the shape? Well, the shape was there as a marketing campaign, but it originated when we tried to get, I think it was 10, 15 grams of weight out of the shaft and put it just below the grip. And that bubble came, there was the original stuff had a brass ring up there and it looked spectacular. It was a black shaft with this brass ring. In fact, uh, that's what, what, uh, a Lothaball won the Masters with was a, a prototype head with that shaft in it, but you, we could never market it or in, you know, because he wasn't, he was with Mormon at the time. We couldn't tell anybody about it really. It was a different right. color. It was a silver head instead of, you know, we had eventually made it. Uh, it was one of the first orange ones with fire soul, but it was the prototype head that I don't know if it really ever sold much of them on market. Cause it was just there for a short period of time as a transition to something else. But that, when they started messing with the weights in the shafts, and now they've got a lot of counterbalance stuff, you know, you, when, when you can take weight out of a club and move it where you want, you can increase speed or control or trajectory or things like that. So that's, that's the precursor to where we are now is a lot of stuff like that. And people, you know, and then the shape shaft went away. Um, I, I, to this day, I'm not real convinced that it was a good idea with that huge button. We had to do specific grips for that bubble shaft. Uh, and it was all about I reducing. Remember, I remember gripping those things back when I was in college. They were brutal. We had one grip that would work for it. Yeah, well, we had to produce, you know, our own grips for it. And, you know, a lot of people got sick and tired. Well, what do you do now if you've got an old set of bubble iron shafts out there and you need new grips i mean they don't exist you're done right right so right was the pro force a, a big change in when that one came out too that yellow and purple one from ust um that was a shaft that titleist used pretty much exclusively um and they had an agreement with ust and we didn't use a whole lot of it until that agreement kind of went away and we were allowed to put it in some of our stuff but uh it was never really a factor with TaylorMade stuff, no. Yeah, I remember there was a lot of, you know, that in the EI-70. I'm just trying to think of the old classics that really kind of changed. You know, they got a lot better in that 10-year period, right? I don't, you know, you take our last 10 years. I don't know if they're, they're probably not as much better as it was from the last 10 years from, you know, you take graphite shafts from, you know, 1990 to 2000. There's a lot of improvement in them. Yeah, well, we had agreements with proprietary shaft manufacturers where we would, buy a certain amount from them and they couldn't sell it to anybody else. And right. uh, so UST and UST and EI 70 were basically in bed with Titleist because we had Fujikura and Aldola. So right. uh, those two shafts you're talking about had a lot of success. There's no question about it, especially in aftermarket stuff. Cause you could buy that shaft aftermarket, but right. you couldn't necessarily right. buy a lot of the Fujikura stuff that we had. You had to buy it all in one piece. A little bit of an arms race with you guys back in the day of manufacturers. Now it's not as exclusive, right? I mean, they're, they're I, kind of I, has all of the options. Exactly. I don't think there is uh, that type of. Uh, no. You know, like we have access to everything, right? I mean, because that's just kind of where the market's gone. Every, you know, mm-hmm. we have to have every major brand because some people want a Ventus and some want a, uh, a hazardous smoke, right? You have to have everything at this point. 
Correct. You know, even a, a, a smaller company like ours has access. There's no cutting us off even. So I know all the big boys have. Basically, you can get any shaft you want and they'll yeah. be happy to work with you anymore. Yeah. Uh, well, well, one last question, um, you know, because it's a sub-70 podcast. We have to ask uh, 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 Tommy Armour III, our guy, back when you met him over in Europe hanging out a little bit, what, what was uh, you know, TA like? We obviously know him today quite well, both you and I, and, you know, he's helped us so much. He's been a mentor to me, and it's cool when one of your heroes becomes a friend, and he really has been. But what was a, a, a young TA over in Europe and, you know, playing golf around the world like when you first met him? Well, I don't think Tommy's changed so much. Uh, his reputation is for one thing, but I've always known Tommy to be really low-key, kind of in the background. He's been there for all of these major events, and he's that fixture that's on the wall sort of stuff. He's never really ever the one that's driving or the center of attention sort of stuff, but he happens to be there, and he's seen so much. I mean, uh, one of the first nights I went with him, we were in Brussels in Belgium, and there was Michael Allen, Tommy, and myself, and we sat down for dinner at the Sidewalk Cafe, and I think it was 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning when we decided to go our, go back to our hotels and get some sleep. It was like a Monday or a Tuesday night. It was just kind of a casual thing. But he's the kind of guy that knows so many people and has such good relationships with, frankly, megastars. But you wouldn't know it until he kind of comes up and introduces you to this guy. And, oh, you know, what, what did you do last night? He says, yeah, I started something called MTV. Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. That makes sense. You know, and then uh, Hollywood producers, Jerry Weintraub and things like that. He knows, he knew so many people that they all considered him uh, a, a close confidant and friend, and he never would name drop and never really, you know, he was just there. I went to his 40th birthday party in Vegas, and um, they, they must have chartered a plane from L.A. to come over because there was... 150 people from LA that just wanted to come over and hang out with Tommy for his 40th. And he just, he knew everybody. And, but I never, uh, I never saw him drunk. I don't, I, I've never seen him out of control whatsoever. He was just the cool guy at the table that, you know, kind of nod his head. And, but he was, you know, uh, one night we're in uh, Chicago and he says, what are you doing tonight? And I said, well, I'm a little tired. I said, what, why, what's going on? He said, I'm going to go see the Stones. You want to come? And I said, oh, man, that sounds fantastic. And then he told me they were in Detroit. <laughs> how, how are we getting to Detroit, right? <laughs> he says, well, well, we'll drive to Detroit. We'll see the concert, and then we'll drive back. And I go, no, I can't. I had to work in the morning. I know you can sleep till noon or 2 o'clock. <laughs> but, but that you know, he had the, the ability with whoever it was with the Stones offered him tickets and backstage passes so he drove over to Detroit for the night watch the concert and turn around and come back I, I, you know it's uh, I've always said dinner with TA is the most interesting experience because you're exactly right uh, you know uh, from, from the friendship I've had with him the last few years is you never know who's going to be at the table but it's always going to it's usually not golfers I, I, matter of fact I don't know if I've ever sat down with another professional golfer at dinner with him in, in LA or Vegas but it is a interesting conversation of like really smart, fun. I mean, what a great conversation it is like that. That's the event of the night is having dinner with with that group of people, and I've been, you know, I'm humbled by it and fortunate enough that I've been included on a few of these dinners, and it's it's great, right? Like it's just always such an interesting eclectic group of people that uh, you know, known him. Everyone seems to have known him for years, and he seems to keep those friends forever. Um, the dinners have always just been, you know, so much fun. Like, and such interesting, smart people to meet in his circle. That's kind of what I've always just been amazed of. Like, from artists and movie producers to an actor to, you know, somebody in the restaurant business. And they're all there because Tom's in town and, you know, we're at Craig's having dinner back-to-back -back nights. Yeah. Why I'm at the table, hell, I don't have any idea. No. Uh, I shouldn't be. But uh, I've wound up there a couple times. It's just fun. It's just fun to go out to dinner with him. Yeah, and that's what I found um, more than anything is just if I'm in the in the in the area and invited to come along, I just want to be the fly on the wall because 
uh, you you weren't sure what was going to go down. But uh, the, the group of eclectic people that he collected over the years, and they would just show up, and you go, really? Okay. Yeah. I give me yeah, these well, you know, back in the day, such and such, and they just stayed in touch. He was very good at staying in touch with, uh, like, to this day, I haven't seen him since Houston, but, you know, he'll probably call me tonight and ask how uh, the podcast went, things like that. He's just interested in people and asks all the right questions. So, Yeah, he's a, he's, he's a good dude. It's, uh, like I said, it's been, it's, uh, I'm, 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 grateful that i can call him a friend and it's been fun to work with him too he really knows the equipment so i figured he had to have some some good stories from from ta over in europe but well there's there's, there's no stories to tell because it was always quiet dinners sort of thing you know no, and that, that, that's what i mean those stories right like that's that's what i've seen too right like, but just like the stories of what an interesting night of who you might bump into not that's crazy i've never seen him crazy either it's but it's always so fun and interesting right and that's where the story comes in right mm-hmm. like the people I've had to have dinner with, I never dreamt I'd sit at the table with that group of people. But yeah. it was fun. It's not like it's stuffy or it's bad or I, you know, I'm, you know, didn't feel comfortable at the table. Like we've had a blast all going out to dinner, and that's where I think the story gets interesting or it's fun to hang out with them. I always uh, appreciate being with or around superstar athletes and superstar uh, actors. They seem to be a lot calmer than those that are trying to find a spotlight on the way up. Uh, yeah, yeah. When they're when when they're craving the spotlight, they do things to try and find the spotlight. But then when they get to this certain level, it's kind of low key. They don't want the spotlight. They want the, the personal space. And they and Tommy gives all of his friends the personal space. You know, let them be who they want to be, sort of thing. Without putting on airs or whatever. And I think he makes everybody relaxed and finds or gravitates to those people where it's really a calm situation, not crazy at all. Yes. It's uh, I feel exactly the same way. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, hope you play well this afternoon on the golf course. And uh, yeah, I would love to have a, you know, we could, like I said, I could go on 17 different directions with this. So I'd love to have a conversation again and, you know, pick your brain on, on some other topics of, I mean, we could talk about rules of golf, how equipment's changed from that, what we could do going forward. So there's so many conversations, George, I could have with you, but, you know, hopefully we can do it again in the future, but I truly enjoyed, you know, this hour and thanks so much for doing it. Well, I, uh, I was listening to a podcast this morning and, uh, it was all about uh, Charles Barkley and Barkley was talking about the owl factor. And I go, you know, even for him, you know, when you drop Charles's name, they say who? That was his owl factor. He's he's now in the owl factor, and I'm through that. You know, I'm not recognized in the industry anymore. I've been out of it long enough where they've forgotten about me and moved on. So it's kind of interesting to be able to come back and tell and talk to some of the stories. And it's nice for me to go into the trailers uh, and see the older guys that remember me and we can re- reminisce on some of the stuff but um, it's like uh, me going to play golf this afternoon i have zero expectations and know that that ship has sailed so it's nice to be able to reminisce you know, and things like this and tell some stories but uh, well, that ship has sailed. Yeah, from, I, I i agree that uh you know people love hearing this because you have so much history that you've seen and then for me too like you know we're, we're we're looking at some old things, especially on forged irons that we're starting to look at, like incorporate into our stuff a little bit every now and then. Right. So it's so interesting to go deep dive back and, you know, why did this work then? And can we use this and modernize it? So you have so much knowledge and history of as long as you did it for, I think, you know, there's a, there's a huge knowledge base you have where somebody like myself just tries to be a sponge and grab, you know, and grab as much of it as I can because we're always thinking of how can we, you know, make our products better and, you know, is there something we can grab from old and, and kind of reinvent and there was a reason it was like that. And so for me, it's, you know, to, to, to be able to have you on my cell phone to call you, it's a wonderful resource. I so appreciate it. Well, I, I appreciate it, but uh, I don't know if you've got the book yet. It's called The Clubmaker's Art. It's a coffee table book, and it basically has – pictures and illustrations of every golf club I think ever invented. 
And uh, I'll be honest with you, I, uh, a man by the name of Sean Toulon, who runs Toulon Putters, used to he introduced me to this book back in the day. And I know through his design work at TaylorMade, he would go back through this book and try and look at different things like you're doing now. And okay, let's modernize this particular golf club and try and figure it out because there is nothing new in golf. It's a new look at it, but, uh, I mean, the original metal wood was made in like 1894 on a magnesium and everybody thought TaylorMade invented it. No, uh, it, it's been around in different forms for such a long period of time. So I think that's the cool thing about golf is it continues to reinvent itself, modernize and do yeah. different things. And that's where it gets so like, this is why I love designing and working with engineers and our tour staff and our good players and stuff like that. It's just so interesting to have the privilege to be able to do this for a living. I, I hope for me that never goes away of how much I still just, I mean, I can't, you know, working with Tommy and like I said, some of the tour guys have gotten to know, like, and how's this equipment performs? So, oh, I'm, I'm like a five-year-old still. I still just, you know, I never had the talent to play professionally this is this is what I get to do now, and it's you know they always say like it's 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 my you know it's my major like this is what I get to do, and it's it, you can learn a lot if you're open to it. Boy, there's a lot from you know the modern technology. There's a lot that you can learn from the past, and if you listen, there's a lot you can learn just from feedback on stuff. Yeah, so the creativity it's, it's so much is fun. Is the the exciting part about it is what can we come up with, and how can we change this, and what if we do yes. this, and yeah, so. Exactly. Well, it's a privilege to have you on. Uh, stay in contact, and uh, like I said, hope we can do it. To, you know, sometime again. I appreciate it.